I think I got that from my mom. Um, you know, my mom was uh, pretty competitive in her own way. She uh, she was a she grew up. Her passion was was dancing. She was actually a, a rockette for a while at Radio City Music Hall. So she she knows what it was like to pour her life into something that's a passion. That was Chris Finch, and this is Wolves Plus. What a feed, Ricky to Carl Anthony Towns for the dunk. Russell shows off the handle and the shot. Over making things happen. Oh, yes he is! Oh, Shazokoki! May the force be with you! Coast to coast for Obi-Wan Okogi. Coach Finch, you have been involved in the game of basketball for a long time. And I had read that what got you into it in the first place was your older brother, Kevin. Was was that kind of like a classic, I just want to do everything my older brother does kind of sibling situation? Yeah, a little bit. I, I would be drug along to his games, mostly in, in the stands reading books. And, uh, but you know, just kind of watching sports and I, I loved all sports growing up and I, I wanted to do everything that he did so when I got the opportunity I started playing and then it was a matter of I had to be better than he was so I kind of fueled the fire the old competitive juices start to kick in absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely you grew up in Reading Pennsylvania and um, a quick google of that town doesn't say home of Chris Finch. It says home of Taylor Swift. <laughs> Absolutely. We, she, uh, well, we didn't know each other, of course, growing up, but uh, <laughs> we, we were in the same suburb of the city of Reading, a place called Wyomissing. Um, and, you know, some of, uh, some of my friends know her parents, which is more along the lines of uh, our generational gap, I guess. Are there shrines all over to Taylor? And she once uh, had coffee here. She ate here. She went to school here. <laughs> I don't know. I know where her house is, or her house used to be. I, I don't. I don't know about uh, her. I think she, they left pretty when she was pretty young. They went to Nashville when she was pretty young. Well, we'll have to change that when the Google search is soon going to say childhood home of Chris Finch. <laughs> you apparently lived near a park too, Brenneman Park, and you and your older brother Kevin, and then some of the neighborhood boys probably played a lot of pickup games. I would guess the no blood, no foul kind of pickup games at this park. Yeah, we uh, fortunately there was a baseball field there. We played football down there. It was like our, having our own arena complex in our backyard. We just had to hop the fence. Sometimes we shoveled snow to play basketball, full court. That was always a, a good workout before the workout. Um, <laughs> there was little league games going on all the time. There was organized playground activities in the summer. It really was a great place to grow up. There was always something to do and uh, lots of people in the neighborhood would just kind of congregate there so you could play pick up basketball, pick up baseball, pick up football, um, you know, and um, just kind of just kind of Americana, if you will. Yeah. There was an article I read about you growing up where your brother Kevin was quoted saying, Chris would never be outworked on or off the basketball court. And when Chris was would lose, you did not want to be around him. <laughs> Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, pretty pretty much. I think I, that's one thing I've grown to uh, learn how to temper that when when uh, we, you know when we face defeats. It's just you can't let one one spill into the next. But always highly competitive. I I was always driven more by the fear of losing than the joy of winning. Uh, and I I remember as you know, even as a young kid we used to play 
uh, old maid or uno or any of these games. And if I lost that, I would probably, you know, sit the next few hands out and just, you know, just in disappointment and disgust. You were just born with that competitive spirit. I think so. I think I got that from my mom. Um, you know, my mom was, uh, pretty competitive in her own way. She, uh, she was a. She grew up. Her passion was was dancing. She was actually a, a rockette for a while at Radio City Music Hall. So she she knows what it was like to pour her life into something that's a passion. Your mom was a rockette. Yeah, she was a rockette. She she left um, she left Maslin, Ohio when she was young. It was her dream to to be a dancer in New York. So she did that for a few years before going back to college to teach. So we grew wow. up. We would generally, you know, once a year go go uh, go up to New York City. I was about two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. We'd go up. Some of her friends were still dancing when I was growing up, um, and we would always go to a show, or maybe the Christmas show, and then we'd have dinner. She would take take us to the dinner somewhere in the city. Oftentimes, we'd go to the uh, on top of the old World Trade Center. There was a great restaurant up there called Windows of the World, and that was one of her favorite places. Wow, that's incredible. Was your mom ever part of one of those infamous Radio City Music Hall Christmas shows? Like, was she part of the Rockettes at Christmas time? Uh, at Christmas time, I'm not 100% sure. I know she did a lot of the summer stuff, but we have pictures of her, you know, in the famous chorus line. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, uh, you know, she, again, she got to live her dream and, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly like, yeah. like her in that regard. That's really cool. Very cool. Uh, you went on to college at Franklin and Marshall in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Go Diplomats. That's right. Or Dips. Dips, yeah. Dips. That's a tough nickname. <laughs> Let's go Dips <laughs> is a tough cheer. <laughs> uh, to be a two-time uh, Division Three All-American and your win-loss record down the stretch, 102 wins to 13 losses. That's mm-hmm. a winning percentage of about 89%, which was a record for the most career wins for a starter in Division Three history. So that all goes back to everything you're talking about, hating to lose, and Kevin saying, don't want to be around you when you lose, and then you go to college. You did a lot of winning. Yeah. I mean, I've had, great, I had a great coach. She was there, I think, 50 years, the only job he ever held was an unbelievable teacher of the game. He makes things simple and fun. Uh, I think he won almost 1,000 games when it was all said and done. Uh, and uh, we went to the national championship in 1991. We lost. And to this day, there's probably, I mean, at least once a week, I think about that game, having lost that championship really? game. Uh, but, you know, we were, we were ranked number one in the country several times during my, my four years there. And it was an incredible experience. I, I, I was recruited by bigger schools, uh, almost went to several of them. My, both my parents ended up in higher education. So I was raised in a small college environment. My, my father uh, was, a, was a director of um, financial development at small colleges. My mom then ended up in continuing education. So the, the whole small college life and atmosphere and kind of was really natural to me. So. When I had the chance to go to Franklin and Marshall, it was right down the street. They were good at basketball. I, I, I studied politics, so I wanted – they had a great political science department. It all just kind of jived for me. And um, I had great teammates, and we were on a heck of a run. 
Yeah, sounds like it was a pretty good fit. What year was it when you lost that national championship game? What, what year was it for you? 1991. We played but your... Uh, oh, it was my junior year. Sorry, yeah, junior your year. Your junior year, okay. You still think about it once a week. Absolutely. <laughs> the tough ones always oh. stick with you. Oh, no kidding. Then your career takes you overseas to the British Basketball League. Mm -hmm. Was there some kind of a pipeline for the small college Pennsylvania kids that would go play in the BBL? How did you even know that this was an option for you? I didn't know it was an option. When I first came, when I graduated uh, college, my first job out of college was supposed to be playing for the Washington Generals, uh, who always played the Globetrotters at the time. Right, of course. And that was in 1992, the summer of 92. I was all set to go. We were headed to, to Rio. We started a six-week tour of South America. Uh, but then the, the general, the, the, sorry, the Globetrotters went bankrupt. So they had to cancel the tour. Curly Neal ends up buying them out of bankruptcy and then relaunches them. So that, that kind of, I was looking forward to it because I just you know, wanted to see the world, play a little basketball no matter what, even if it wasn't real basketball. And um, so I, I took a year, I got, I worked in a bank in an internship program, coached high school basketball, kept myself in shape. Then the following year, my coach in college, from college reached out and he said that a mutual friend of a lady um, by the name of Betty Cadona, who, who had, was like the winningest um, women's basketball coach in Great Britain, uh, was a partner in starting a men's franchise in Sheffield. And they were looking for a foreigner to come in and play. And, and so it was just this kind of that once-in-a-lifetime connection between two, co two coaches, and, and I uh, was fortunate enough to be given an opportunity to go over there. Sometimes it's just all about the timing. No doubt. <laughs> Been wow. So you started playing then for the Sheffield Forgers who became the Sharks yes. in South Yorkshire, England and played 93 to 97. When you were playing there, did you think that maybe your playing career would continue and this might be the chance for you to leapfrog somewhere else? Or did you kind of realize that that might be it for you? Yeah, on the I went over to, um, I always wanted to get in, I always wanted to get into coaching. I knew in, high, in college I wanted to be in, in coaching. So I, I went overseas just thinking maybe it gives me a different angle. I'll play, play pro ball for a couple years, see Europe, make it a life experience, um, and then just kind of figure out where it took, took me after that. And while I was over there, you know, I played, I loved playing, but my playing career wasn't going anywhere fast. And the team that I was playing for knew that I wanted to get into coaching. So they actually offered me the job when the coach I was playing for left to take another job which was, again, one of those you, you know, un incredible opportunities that just plops yeah. right in your lap. And I picked it up and ran with it that time. And was that unusual to go from playing for that team to then coaching that team? Yeah, over there, I mean, maybe not so much because the league was a little bit smaller and a lot more familiar. And you had a lot of guys who were coaching who had played in the league but with some distance. But at the age of 27, I – ended up coaching the guys I had just played with the season before, a lot of them. And I always joke with them. I, I give them uh, a lot of credit because they allowed me to, you know, be a jerk to them enough. <laughs> 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 uh, 
and still wanted <laughs> to be friends with me as well as play for me. Yeah, that's what you have to do. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> so you coached the Sharks. You coached the Sharks then for six years until 2003. And to be doing that and living in South Yorkshire, England, I did uh, check on just how to speak Yorkshire because oh, you spent so much time there. Apparently, the, the two keys are to not pronounce H's yeah. and not pronounce T's. So you would say something like spending the, the holiday in, in Odell. Yeah, Like with exactly. no H's or with no T's. Do you get, be friendly with my cat? That's <laughs> like with my cat, but with my cat. Yeah, a, a, jockey, a jockey rides an horse. A jockey rides in a horse? An horse, yeah, they don't, yeah. Horse. I mean, it was so did, that on the news at night, sometimes they would be speaking English but still have subtitles. So the rest of the country could understand what was being said. Yeah. So it's just the accent, the dialect. It, yeah, the dialect. And you find that all over Europe. Um, small towns will have a very different dialect from a town that's maybe less than 10 miles away. What did you pick up? How did you start to talk after six years there? Well, I, I never picked up the dialect, thank God, because it's a pretty, pretty tough and rough one. But um, <laughs> you end up just by, you, you know, I always said the, you know, English language is, is, is not the same on the other side of the Atlantic. It's, it's a, it, every day I would learn a new word or a new phrase and so you end up starting to use those phrases just so people can understand you quicker. Okay. And do you find yourself, even to this day, throwing something out and people look at you like, what? Oh, yeah. Every once in a while. And especially when I was just with, uh, with Nick in, in Toronto, you know, he, was, he spent a lot of time over there. Nick Nurse, he spent, we, we met mm -hmm. and you know, kind of forged our friendship there. And uh, their director of sports science, Alex McKechnie, is from Scotland. So the three of us would joke around with some of the, the phrases that we had learned over there. The jockey rides the horse. Yeah. That's terrible. Um, you then coached in Germany for um, a couple, of, or coached a team in Germany, two different teams in Belgium. All in all, you spent your time overseas as a player or a coach from 93 to 2009. That's 16 years of overseas playing and coaching. And I have to believe the life experiences you have and the culture that you experienced in 16 years has to be just incredible. Yeah. When I went over, I always kept thinking to myself, well, I'll, I'll go one more year. I'll play for another year. And then once I started hitting the coaching track and we started having a lot of success and I just pointed all my efforts to just growing my career there. But to your point, I've been to pretty much every country in Europe with the exception of, I don't think I've been to Romania. Um, and I don't believe I've been to Norway. But I think I've been to every other country in Europe, through, most of it through basketball, believe it or not. I've been to Russia half a dozen times. And, and not, I've been to Moscow, but the great part about the basketball travel is it takes you to these towns you know, just your average town in the middle of Hungary. Mm -hmm. So you get to really experience what life is like, you know, in Hungary, um, not just these big cities that we all hear about. Uh, and, and of course we got to go there too. So, and when you travel in Europe, it, it's not the same as traveling here. You travel commercial. So your, your length of stay is there. You're in town for at least probably three days. 
there's opportunity for you to kind of really get a sense for your, you know, what life might be like there. Uh, and I went, started, first started going to Eastern Europe in the early 90s as a player. And you have to remember the wall came down in the 80s, like late 80s. So we're talking within five years after the fall of communism. And then having gone back several times over the next 15 years or even 20 years with the national team, it was incredible to watch those places like Western eyes. And in some ways, uh, it was great. Uh, but in other ways, it kind of lost, you know, I don't want to say it's charm because I'm not saying that wasn't necessarily charming, but it just lost its kind of mystique. Yeah. Well, and you had said when you graduated college, you wanted to play basketball or be part of basketball and see the world. Yeah. So uh, that you did that. that. We, you that did that. We accomplished. <laughs> we accomplished that goal. <laughs> yes. Uh, one of the things. One of the things you got to be part of being overseas was head coach of the Great Britain national team for a handful of years, including the Olympic year of 2012, which was in London, so the host city. And if I'm not mistaken, you met the Queen of England through this we did. as well. Yeah, yes? we did. It was probably, I think, my mom's most proud moment of me when I told her I met the Queen. <laughs> and uh, Really? It, it, it was uh, a Saturday morning. Uh, the Olympics had started the night before. So the Olympics are in full swing. A lot of the athletes are either training or at competition. And so they're out of their, we were in, like, we were in apartments or dormitory style setting. And so we got an advance notice to say that, hey, the queen's gonna come through in an hour and we'd like to meet a half a dozen coaches and a half a dozen athletes. Nick Nurse and I were in our apartment working in preparation for a game the following day. And they asked us if we would be part of that uh, group of um, you know coaches that would meet the queen. So we we you know, we we got quick brief on the protocols, and she came by, and it was incredibly disarming personality for given that you know who really? she is and everything that surrounds her. And she just said to me, you know, nice to meet you. What is it that you coach? I said, I coach basketball. She said, well, that makes sense. You're very tall, you know, just <laughs> kind of kind of grandmotherly conversation, but in a very sincere and genuine way. And what is the proper, I know as a female, I would curtsy. What, did you bow or how, what were, yeah, how'd you greet? Yeah, a little bow. Of course, you can't speak until you're spoken to, but it's kind of okay. how I was raised, so it didn't matter. <laughs> but that was the protocol that they told you, right? This is this is how you address her and when you address her. Yes, and and when so as she's moving down the line, you start getting really nervous. But then when she gets to you, she makes it seem like it's just a conversation between you and any old person, which I think is really incredible. And that's a a, a rare gift given. I mean, how many times that she has to do this? She's yeah. probably pretty good at it. But that's a pretty good story, though, because there are not a lot of people who have had the distinction of meeting the Queen of England. So that's a cool one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that whole summer of the Olympics just threw up one great, incredible opportunity after another. And the, the entire Olympic experience, experience from building the program in 2006 from nothing all the way to 2012 was um, probably one of the more um, challenging and rewarding things I've ever done. And you made your mom proud. So that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a bonus. About, it's all about making mom <laughs> proud. 
When you moved back to the United States then, finally in 2009, to coach in what was then the D-League, now the G-League, with uh, the Houston Rock Rockets affiliate, the Rio Grande Valley Vipers, was that difficult for you to leave your overseas uh, spot at that time, or were you craving America again after 16 years? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I I wasn't necessarily craving America. I wasn't even looking for the opportunity. It kind of just came to me. I had just signed a contract extension where I was in Belgium. I was very happy there. I thought I was on a really good path to, you know, take the next step to even bigger leagues, uh, in which would you know which probably would would have have happened in a year or two if things had kept going the way they were going, um, and then. Sam Hinkie, who uh, used to work with the Rockets and be the GM in uh, Philly, one of Gerson's counterparts, reached out to me and just asked me if I would be interested in this new um, G League or D League experience or experiment that they were going to undertake. I didn't know Sam at all. They had heard, heard about me a little bit through some contacts in Europe. They were looking for a different profile. Then I met Gerson and we went through the interview process. I, I felt I connected really well with them, but it was a long process and it took a while. So that was probably started in July and then they ended up offering me the job in early, early September, uh, middle, maybe middle September, right after my season had started. So I'd coached a couple games and then had to, had to tell them I was leaving to go. I, I knew I had to take it. I mean, it was my only chance and my best chance to come back and work within the NBA, which wasn't even a stated goal for me. I just wanted to kind of be the best coach I could be wherever I was. Uh, but when they came to, uh, to offer, I, was, I knew I had to take it. And um, it was a tough decision because the club I was at, I loved, but it was, you know, obviously I had to do it. When you come back to the States then, you kind of hit the ground running. Was the basketball really similar or was it like kind of relearning things the way the American style was at this time? Well, that, the lucky part for me, and I think this has been part of my success in different places I've been, is that, you know, the game was changing to the way that we had played it in Europe, which was like this hybrid style of North American NBA style versus the, the fluidity of the European game. I kind of adopted both styles and put them together. Um, and then the Rockets were like looking for that. We always had played fast, shot a lot of threes, uh, and they had done their homework on me. I didn't even realize at the time what they were doing, that they were looking for a certain type of coach that valued the same things that they valued. They didn't tell me any of this really until after they hired me when they sat me down and said, here's why your teams have won, and they went through all the science behind it. And it made sense to me because yeah. I – I had, I had been doing it unknowingly, so I could trust the data that they were giving me. Um, and where a lot of coaches nowadays with all the analytics, it's a reverse pattern. They're being asked to tr trust numbers without having like right. seen it work firsthand. So it would, that synergy has pretty much always been the, catal the catalyst to like my success in that I was able to just keep doing what I always kind of did, you know, with small tweaks here and there and adjusting as things change and go along. But the core philosophy was already in place. You were ahead of your time. I don't know about that. I just think 
I mean, it was wasn't done in any uh, intelligent way. I can tell you that it was literally <laughs> playing in some of the medium tier leagues, and we would play uh, against the top tier leagues in the European competitions. I just could only afford the smaller, faster guy. I couldn't afford the bigger ones. I mean, the the best ones would go to those bigger leagues. So I had to, to build teams, and we had to build teams that could compete in both. And while we gave up some, you know, size and strength, at times we just adopted a faster style of play, which made us highly competitive. Okay. So you did it out of necessity, but it turned out that you you were doing it for the right reasons, and it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Yeah, exactly. And we didn't even really know the science behind it at the time. It was. I do remember in probably 2000. Eight maybe reading an article about Daryl Morey and and um, the Houston Rockets and how th this was an analytically driven organization just like uh, the the Oakland A's were in baseball um, the Moneyball stuff yeah, and I was Billy reading Bean. it yep. and I found it incredibly interesting but I was trying to make heads or tails of it and how are they measuring all this and all the you know little did I know they have every resource to do so we didn't have that of course in Europe and. And then just as you know, luck would have it, there I am a year later uh, in, in that organization. Must have been meant to be. When you joined Rio Grande Valley, that's when you and, and Gerson first kind of connected. Yeah. What, what do you feel like it was either about the way you work together or the way you just are as human beings that there's just this click between the two of you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I think we, we had a a great relationship early on because I, I just built on communication. I think Gerson's an outstanding communicator. I think he, uh, we, when you're, when you're a G league coach, you're much more an extension of the front office than you are even the coaching staff because it's a platform for personnel evaluation as much as anything. So we had several goals there. We were, we were trying to win. We wanted to build a winning culture. We wanted to develop a philosophy and we wanted to develop our talented players. For, and, and, and so we're communicating every day about these things. And I would communicate with Daryl Morey, you know, two, two times a week, maybe. Uh, Gerson's every day, if not multiple times a day. There were always front office scouts and different, um, um, you know, people from the organization and coming through to connect with us at the D-League level. So I, I, I felt, a, a, you know, a part of that front office. I got to watch them uh, evaluate talent, roster build, manage, manage their assets. It gave me a different perspective quickly uh, rather than just coaching. You know, coaching, sometimes we can have like a short-term window. How are we going to win tonight? How are we going to win next week? It allowed me to appreciate the, the uh, medium to longer-term approach and understand like the organizational objectives when it comes to managing a roster and, and I think they appreciated that that I was willing to be a partner in all in all of that and I wasn't just trying to rack up wins well that eventually led to you joining the Rockets for five seasons the Nuggets the Pelicans and the Raptors mm -hmm. all as an an assistant coach in the NBA do NBA assistant coaches have five-year plans or plans really at all because you're you're so much at the mercy of circumstances that are out of your control. How do you sort of plot life and the next years of your life as an NBA assistant coach? Yeah, great question. I, I think um, they don't have five-year plans. It's very difficult to do so. 
I've always thought there's really two types of coaches. There's the coaches that, uh, you know, are kind of worried and maybe fixated too much on their next job. And they're always looking to kind of feel like they have a safety net because some of the things you were talking about, it's, it's not a knock on them. It's just kind of the nature of the business. What happens if things, you know, if my boss has it out with the owner, I'm at risk, you know, there's nothing I can do. Um, but the other type of coaches, those that just focus on being really good and being really supportive in their role, whatever that is. And I just, I always believe that that's like, if I can just be really good at what I'm being given the opportunity to do, then uh, everything will work out from there. You have been described by people who know you really well as being meticulously prepared. Can you sort of just describe what your preparation process is like for a game or a certain matchup and how detailed that is? Um, well, you know, I think you know, a lot of coaches in the league are meticulously prepared. I think that's just, you know, there's a lot of smart basketball people here. Uh, I try to try to focus on the basics. You know, I don't want to be overly detailed to the point where it clouds what the main things that we need to get done tonight are. Uh, I think understanding the whole but narrowing the scope to you know, one or two key things on every single night is really important because that's what your players are going to latch on to. And particularly in today's environment where we all struggle with like the messages if they're long. Um, so I just try to kind of – but the preparation gives me the confidence to know what might come that we're not already discussing. So I can be ready to adjust. They don't need to know about it, but I certainly sure. do, and our staff certainly should. One of the other descriptions of you, is, and it, it's a positive one, is that you are an offensive mastermind. And I'm wondering just how often throughout the course of a day or a week you like see X's and O's in your head, or you scribble on a napkin because something comes to you. Do you live in that world where you're just kind of always thinking about creatively different ways to move guys around on a court? Um, not so much. My, I, I think more along the line in concepts, you know, more about space, more about, you know, how do we make a defense choose what they want to do? I, I'm not so much like a, there's, there's coaches in the league that are outstanding with X's and O's and great uh, after timeout plays or end of game plays. And I, I think my strength in offense is more about space and cutting and uh, filling space and forcing defenses to choose. Um, and by doing so, they're going to tell us then what, you know, what we can have, if you will. I, I look at it a little bit like um, – in football, you know, these football has been revolutionized by these spread offenses. Quarterback walks to the to the line of scrimmage, doesn't know exactly what he's going to do, reads the defensive in front of him, and then starts making the calls off that. That's kind of how I look at the game. It's a read and react kind of thing. Very much so, yeah. Okay. You have also said that, and this is a quote from you, that sometimes it's less about X's and O's, it's more about leadership and empowering your staff to work. Why is that your philosophy? How do you see that as the bigger picture? Uh, for me, it's about leadership for sure. There's a lot of smart people that can help you with the X's and O's. These jobs are very big and uh, you don't, you're not gonna cover all the bases. You're gonna have blind spots. So that's what your staff is for, is to support you where you're not 
as strong as in other places. I think the key to being a great assistant coach is have meaningful work. These, you know, everybody should have meaningful work. They need to feel that they're contributing to um, the wins, the environment, the message, uh, whatever it is we're trying to get accomplished. I'm not, I don't like busy work. I'm, I'm big into efficiency. I'm a less is more guy. I also think that if they're, if I'm empowering the staff to do more, uh, then they're by nature going to also carry the right message out in front of the team. And if they don't, then it's pretty obvious and to, to see, but not, we don't expect that, but it just gives them a voice. I don't want them to hear my, I don't want the team to hear my voice all the time. And, and, and you have more people you can have saying the things that you want said, the better it's going to be. I know you haven't had a ton of time here, but based on what you've seen so far and what you already knew about this team, how much excitement do you have for the young talent in the, the Anthony Edwards types that you can kind of mold and bring into the future of the organization? Uh, extremely talented. It's one of the reasons I was so interested in the job when given the opportunity. Um, the the core is has everything you want in today's game. They have speed, size, athleticism, multi-positional length. Um, you know, between Ant Anthony, he reminds me, you know, of a cross between Zion Williamson and James Harden. And of course, you know he's not those players yet in any in, in every capacity, but sure. he can grow into be, you know, just as good in his own right with that combination skill set. You know, Jaden McDaniel's his his two way ability with his length and his shooting. Um, it, you know, these guys. It's incredible with how quickly young guys like do develop, and the the, the steps that they make. See, are significant ones, but it just takes time. It just takes time. And then by this time next year, they're going to be 25 to 50% better at least. And that's, you know, really exciting. And then, of course, we have, uh, you know, Carl, which is at the heart of it all. And um, he's, you know, again, the prototypical modern big man, super skilled, can play all over the floor. You can run an entire offense through him, around him, with him. And if you're trying to be creative on the offensive side or the defensive side, and you are working with your centerpiece, being a seven-foot big man who can shoot a three, handle the basketball, how much creativity does Carl Anthony Towns allow you as coaches on both ends of the court? Oh, it's going to be fun. It really is. I mean, we, you know, we're going to use him as a – I, mean, I think you've seen it a little bit. We've used him as a handler and pick and roll already mm -hmm. a little bit. We're getting him back down in the post. It, his passing is elite. It leads to great shots. Uh, everyone thinks that the post up is a dead play in basketball. It, I mean, if you, it, it's a dead play if you don't score, but he can score it. And he, and his kickouts lead to the best shots on the floor, oftentimes corner threes. So, um, you know, we just got to keep massaging all that and, you know, just learning how to play around it as we move him around the floor. And this is one of the things I've, been fortunate enough to work with some really good big men in my stops along the way from Dwight Howard to Nikola Jokic to Anthony Davis to DeMarcus Cousins to Julius Randle to Zion. The, and all different skill sets, but all very um, kind of adaptable to different things that we put them in. 
And Carl is rather young. This is only his sixth NBA season. This group as a whole needs to learn you. You need to learn them. They're still learning each other. How much exponential growth do you see down the road that this team really hasn't even tapped into yet? Yeah, I see a significant amount. I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're excited about the, the, the stretch run of this season, the last 30, 40 games or whatever we have left. I'm not even sure uh, where we are, but we're going to use the break. We're going to recalibrate. We're going to get healthy. We're going to get uh, everybody back in the fold. Um, we'll get uh, start to you know bed down with our philosophy and our changes and the things that we can impact right now. And then it's a, a unbelievable evaluation period as we prepare for next season and figure out going forward. So I think that's where you're going to see a real jump after we get a training camp. We have a body of work to already kind of dissect and then we can really be very strategic as we move forward. You are someone who has been to Minnesota and to Minneapolis multiple times, been to Target Center multiple times, but now this is your home. This is your home team. And I'm just wondering what your impression was as an outsider when you would come in for a game and head on out. Everybody sort of has their opinions about a place they've been. What has your opinion been like of Minneapolis? Anyone who uh, knows me knows that I've long advocated as that's one of the sneaky sneakiest best cities on the trail i have a bunch really? of friends who go to the final four every year and they've been doing it for 30 years and for some reason whenever it's in minneapolis they decide they go to vegas instead because they don't want to come to the cold <laughs> and i keep telling them you gotta go you gotta go it's a great city it's a great city well they finally ended up coming up here during the super bowl because they're eagles fans and these and the in the, the super bowl was here and um a lot of them you know, lo absolutely love the city. And that was in February. So I, I, I do. I, I think the city's got a great vibe. Um, I like the energy in the North Loop. I mean, if not strayed much further than downtown or there. I saw opening sure. game at the uh, of the Twins when I was with Denver. We were playing here opening opening day. So I walked over in the afternoon. Um, I mean, my my roots are uh, Midwestern by nature. I, my parents were from Ohio. I was born there. I kind of raised in a Midwestern, in Midwestern way. So I relate well to this. Well, you'll fit in nicely. You'll fit Thank in you. nicely. It's nice to have a chance to get to know you a little bit better. Wish you nothing but success. Thanks, Marnie. Thanks, Coach.